Well, as we consider this uh, passage this morning, um, Jesus is teaching, I'm reminded again of one of the priorities that we have here at Crosswinds. One of our priorities, one of our convictions is to uh, preach through God's word consecutively. Uh, to start a book and then go through it verse by verse until we get to the end of it. And about a year ago, uh, over a year ago, we started going through the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1, and we've been working our way through this book verse by verse. And so it, it's our conviction that this is the best way to proclaim God's Word, to, to reveal, our, uh, reveal to us all that God has to say in a thousand or countless different situations. And so if this is your first time here at Crosswinds, one of your first times here at Crosswinds, and you're wondering, well, why are we touching on divorce, uh, this sticky subject? Uh, the, the answer is, is really deep, and it's because chapter 10 comes after chapter 9. Uh, we were in chapter 9 last week, and now we're in chapter 10. This is at the beginning of chapter 10. And, and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I also recognize uh, this is a topic that, that does need sensitivity. It does uh, need to, to just... Uh, be thoughtfully uh, communicated. It's something that, that is, is painful. It's real for so many of us. And, and as I prayed just a few moments ago, uh, this is something that, that all of us seemingly come with, with baggage. No matter where we are, no matter what our past is like, uh, whether we've been divorced in our own lives or, or we feel like we are in the midst of our first marriage and it's, it's, it's just great and we find ourselves uh, struggling or, or whether we're single, this is a passage that has something to say to each and every one of us this morning. This is something that is very important for us to hear, but the question is, what possibly can we hope to communicate that is going to, to mean something for all of us with, with so many different backgrounds, so, so much in our past? And I think the beginning of the, the answer to that question is actually found in the title of this sermon, Marriage and the Kingdom. You see, Jesus speaks to divorce in this passage, but actually his primary concern is not divorce. His primary concern is marriage, and he wants us all, no matter what our relationship status, no matter if we're single, we're married, we're divorced, we are remarried, uh, whether we are divorced and not remarried, whatever our relationship status, we, we need to understand God's original plan for marriage. In fact, I would say that, that we cannot truly understand God's view on divorce, his, his stance on divorce, without first understanding his intent for marriage. And so this morning we find ourselves in the midst of this passage that comes in the midst of this teaching from Jesus on the kingdom of God that is coming. The kingdom of God is coming through Jesus. He's bringing it. Uh, Mark 8, verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 10, focuses on this idea of the kingdom. More specifically, what does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus in Jesus' kingdom? What does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus? Last week, we put uh, words to that. What does it mean to be a follower of the way of Jesus? And this morning actually is no exception. It is, what does it mean for us to be followers of the way of, the G of Jesus, specifically in the area of marriage? So let's work our way through this passage. Uh, as we open this text, we're going to see that this story, this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees actually breaks down into three nice, succinct parts. And so we're going to follow those. First, we have the trap, then we have the response, and then we have the explanation. So let's dive into this text, first looking at the trap, picking up again in verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. 
Now, our, our text opens with Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. That's very clear. We've, we've seen that uh, really in the last chapter and a half, that Jesus has his mind set on Jerusalem. He is slowly working his way toward Jerusalem, and we all probably know what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He is going to be killed for the sins of the world. And Jesus is slowly and yet persistently focused on getting to Jerusalem. He's been in the far north with his disciples, and he takes this time to teach his disciples about what is to come. This is what we see in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, this passage, of course, is, is after that. Jesus is, is on his way to Jerusalem. And, and significantly, about the, the, there's something uh, really significant about this passage. It is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has entered into Judea. To this point, Jesus has been in Galilee. He's been to the north. He's actually been pretty far away from Jerusalem where he will soon be killed. But now we see that Jesus has entered into Judea, the, the province where Jerusalem is located. He is drawing ever closer to Jerusalem. And on his way, he's not only teaching his disciples now, but he's, he's also teaching the crowds here. Now, we don't know the specific content of Jesus' teaching in this passage, but based off the rest of Mark, we can, we can pretty safely assume that Jesus is teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God. And this fits in quite well with Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. There's this clear break in Mark 9, 50 into Mark 10, verse 1. Mark 9, Jesus is teaching his disciples in private, but now he's teaching the crowds. So there's this clear break between these two chapters, and yet at the same time, there's also this common thread that ties them together. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is speaking to the importance of those who follow him serving others, doing what you can to serve others sacrificially. Rather than being a stumbling block for people, we are to welcome others into the family of Jesus into, by, uh, by using the name of Christ. And then we get to Mark chapter 10, and here in Mark 10, it's as if Jesus is taking that general charge of serving others, of, of welcoming others, of not being a stumbling block to others, and he says, let's apply that specifically to one area of life, specifically into the area of marriage. Don't be a, don't be a stumbling block to others through divorce, but, but instead serve others sacrificially, and next week is, is more of the same. Jesus is speaking, to, uh, speaking about young children, and it's the same kind of context. Don't be a stumbling block to young children. Don't be a stumbling block to others by dismissing children, but instead love them, serve them sacrificially. So Jesus is teaching to the crowds. He's probably teaching on the kingdom of God. And then we get to Mark chapter 10, verse 2. And Pharisees came up to him, and, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So here we see uh, Jesus teaching on the kingdom of the God. Uh, the, the Pharisees arrive, and we haven't seen the Pharisees for a few chapters. Last time they appeared was Mark uh, chapter 7, I believe, or Mark chapter 8. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, um, these people who believed that the key to bringing in God's kingdom was to adhere to a very strict set of rules and make everyone else live by those rules 
as well. And they had this appearance of being super religious, of being deeply religious. And yet, as we see over and over in the Gospels, they were almost always focused on external, ex- uh, external appearances rather than on matters of the heart. And so the Pharisees approach Jesus, and they're in front of this crowd, and they level this question at Jesus concerning divorce. Now, the way that this question is worded in Mark may not alert us to the trap that the Pharisees are springing on Jesus. Thankfully, we have the Gospel of Matthew, gives us a parallel passage, and it it gives us more insight into the, the specifics of what these Pharisees are asking Jesus. It was a debate that was actually all the rage at that time. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, that additional phrase, for any cause, helps us to understand the cultural context and the content of this trap. The question isn't just simply, can people get divorced? The question is more specifically, can people get divorced for any reason at all? Is God okay with that? The question centers around this issue of no-fault divorce. Can someone get divorced no matter what the cause may be? And is that legitimate in God's eyes? Now, in the first century, there was this debate that was raging around this very topic. Two very different schools of thought, uh, different rabbis had gathered uh, people around them because of their interpretation of this topic. There was an Old Testament passage that was oftentimes in view for the, relig- uh, for the Jewish people of that day. Just one verse specifically, and that was in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And, there, uh, and a lot of interpretation was, was, um, was thrown into this, and different interpretations were all about this one verse. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she, find, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then it goes on to talk about different regulations for this. We'll look at the rest of this passage here in a few seconds. Now, there were two different religious schools of thought, two different rabbis in the first century that debated one word in this verse, and that was the word indecency. So everyone, uh, every single person, uh, when they thought of divorce, who was serious or somewhat serious about their faith, this was what was on their mind when they read this passage, when they thought of the issue of divorce, especially the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are extremely concerned with having these religious appearances of, of looking good before God. And so the question of the matter is, what qualifies as indecency? Now, uh, significantly, this word indecency in our English Bibles uh, is, is literally, in Hebrew, it is the word nakedness. And so one school of rabbis, they took this very literally, and they said that what is focused on here when it talks about indecency, it's restricted to the issue of, of physical nakedness. This is restricted to things like adultery. What's more, this school didn't only say that this was permissible for divorce, they actually said that you were required to get divorced if a spouse committed adultery. That's one school of thought. There was another school of thought that was much larger, uh, much more people adhered to this, and it believed this, that the word indecency could be interpreted in many different ways. And they concluded that virtually anything could be counted as indecency. Even, and this is an example that's used in Jewish writings of the first century, 
Even something as, as small as burning your husband's toast would, could be considered something that is indecent and could lead to just cause for divorce. Now, significantly in the Old Testament, what we see, and, and this is very common for uh, the, the societies of that day, only the husband could divorce the wife. The wife was not allowed to divorce the husband. And so, in this situation, if the husband decided that there was anything indecent in his wife, he didn't like her cooking, he didn't like the way she looked, he wanted a new wife, these would be grounds for divorce. These were forms of indecency, and so divorce was permitted. So here's the trap that the Pharisees are springing on Jesus when they ask this question. Jesus, which side of the debate do you fall on? Do you believe that you are required to get divorced if there is some sort of physical act of adultery? Or do you believe that anything can merit divorce? Which side do you fall on? And, and, and Jesus' popularity, no matter how he answers, is going to take a hit. He's going to alienate some people from the crowds that have been following Jesus. They've sprung their trap. Now the question is, how does Jesus respond? Well, that's our second uh, section of this text, the response. We see that Jesus actually answers their question the way rabbis oftentimes did in the first century uh, with a question of his own. So take a look at verse 3 and verse 4. Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now notice Jesus' specific words for here. First, he mentions Moses, which is another way of referring to the law. Moses was the one who wrote down the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the law. And so when Jesus is saying, what did Moses command you? He's actually just asking, hey, what does the law command for you? Second, notice he uses the word command. He doesn't say allow. He doesn't say permit. He's actually asking, what is the command of Scripture? Jesus is, is hinting at where he's going to go in answering this question. He's, he's concerned with the heart of the issue. He's not concerned with external appearances. He's concerned with the heart. Namely, he's concerned with what God is concerned with when it comes to divorce. Now, the Pharisees, they, I guess somewhat surprisingly to me, they, they actually respond. They, they answer Jesus' question, and uh, this is the answer with the, the, uh, the verse that's at the center of this debate, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now notice that the Pharisees, they don't actually or exactly answer Jesus' question. They only say what Moses allowed someone to do when it came to divorce. They don't get to the heart of the issue like Jesus is going to. They instead answer uh, uh, by, by saying, well, this is what Moses allowed. And they don't answer the question of what constitutes as just means for divorce either. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now Jesus begins to pull back the layers of this debate. And it gets to the heart of the matter. This issue, when it comes to divorce is simply just hard hearts. Specifically hard hearts of people like the Pharisees. I want to read the, the context of this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I think it's helpful for us to understand what Jesus means when he talks about hard hearts. Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given to you as an inheritance. Jesus tells the Pharisees that this debate misses the point. This debate is concern, uh, this debate that's concerning legitimate rounds, uh, legitimate grounds for divorce isn't what Deuteronomy is talking about at all. It's not written to give us reasons for why you can get divorced. It's instead written to provide guidelines to limit the damage caused by divorce. This passage assumes that divorce will take place, but Deuteronomy 24 is actually concerned with a specific practice. This idea of divorcing someone and then remarrying them and then divorcing them and remarrying them and on and on, the same person over and over and over again. Such a practice is an abomination in God's eyes because it undervalues marriage and it takes advantage of and abuses women who were in a vulnerable spot in the ancient Near East. And so when Jesus says, Moses gives you this commandment because of your hard hearts, he's reminding the Pharisees that there is a bigger picture. It's almost as if he's saying to them, you know, you're, you're asking the wrong question if you're, not, if you're asking this question about the right grounds for divorce because at least for the Pharisees, they don't actually care about the heart. They just simply want to know what they can get away with while still looking like they are good followers of God without any concern for what God actually desires from his people. Now, by mentioning their hard hearts, Jesus is declaring that divorce is not a command, but instead it's a concession to a broken world. Deuteronomy is saying, you know what, because you live in a broken world and because we are broken people, Divorce is going to exist. And in order to, present, to prevent the vulnerable uh, from, from being taken advantage of, and in order to protect the high view that God places on marriage, here are some regulations for it. And that's what Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 is about. Now, significantly, Jesus doesn't just say that this is an issue about hard hearts. He specifically says this is an issue about your hard hearts. This is not a not-so-subtle statement to the Pharisees. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows that they don't actually care about what God wants from them. Instead, they want to discredit Jesus. They are concerned with righteousness. They're instead concerned with getting Jesus out of the picture. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds by saying, you know what? Yes, God permits divorce in the law, but he does so in a way that is a concession to hard hearts, not as a command that is to be followed in any and every situation. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He goes even further in in verses 6 through 8, explaining not just divorce, but God's purpose for marriage itself. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. 
I said this earlier, I think it's worth repeating. To understand God's view or his stance on divorce, we have to first understand God's view of marriage. And to do that, Jesus goes to one of the first five books of the Bible, but not to Deuteronomy. He instead goes to Genesis. He goes to the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, before there were even hard hearts, to look at what God's plan for marriage was in the beginning. First, he declares that God is the creator of both men and women. This is an allusion to Genesis 1, verse 27, that talks about both men and women being created in God's image. One of the most important verses of the Bible, a foundational verse for the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Both have inherent worth and value because they are made to reflect God and to be like God. But before we can say anything on the topic of divorce, Jesus wants to remind us of the incalculable worth of all people, of both men and of women. And if we don't start there, no matter what conclusion we may reach on the issue of divorce, we are going to end up in the wrong spot. Because we have to start by recognizing that God sees all people as having this infinite value in his eyes. So he quotes Genesis 1, or alludes to Genesis 1, then he goes to Genesis 2. And he goes to this passage in Genesis 2 that really, if we're being honest, is, is like the first marriage in the Bible. The marriage of Adam and Eve says this in Genesis 2, verse 24, describing Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now here, Jesus helps us understand the importance of marriage in God's eyes. Uh, a couple years ago, a couple summers ago, we uh, did a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that we saw as we were working through the uh, Ten Commandments, I don't expect you to remember this, when we were going through the, the commandment on honoring your father and your mother, one of the things that we talked about in that sermon is that why, we honor, why do we honor our father and mother? It's because it is one of the ways, the tangible ways that we show honor to God. So God asks us to honor our parents as a way to show him that we are honoring him. And so here we see this high value that God puts on the marriage relationships. If one of the most important things that you can do with your life is to honor your father and mother, but in marriage, God says you are to leave your father and mother, that speaks to how important the marriage relationship is in God's eyes. And if by implication, honoring your father and mother is one of the ways that we honor God, so also the same thing must be true of honoring God by serving and loving your spouse. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He, he also tells us that there is something beautiful and, and mysterious that happens in marriage. Not only is a, a new family created, but the two become one. The, the husband and the wife become one. They are inseparably joined together by God himself. Have you ever wondered why marriages oftentimes take place in a church or, or a pastor is the one who oftentimes officiates a marriage? And it's because of this. It's a symbol of God being the one who joins two people together. That God is at work in this marriage. That God is actually uniting the two of them. It's not just a piece of paper. 
but it is something special that is happening beyond our comprehension in marriage. This is taking place before sin, before the fall, before hard hearts. God gives marriage to men and to women. And Jesus establishes that truth, and then he gives us the implication. He starts by describing the significance of marriage, and then he says, all right, now let's consider what this has to do for, or what this has to say about divorce in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Go back to the Pharisees' question at the beginning of this passage. Matthew, I want to read Matthew's version again. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the question is, is there, no such, th- or is there such a thing as no-fault divorce? Can you divorce your spouse for any reason that you choose? Jesus gives us the answer by bringing us back to what God originally planned for marriage. He says, no, there's, there's no such thing as no-fault divorce. What God has joined together, let no person separate. But the text doesn't stop there. As so often happens, Jesus teaches something in public, and then he further explains it to his disciples in private. And so we close with verses 10 through 12 and the explanation. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Here, Jesus is describing divorce. He's describing remarriage to his disciples, and he doesn't mince words. He uses a very shocking comparison to highlight the very high view that God puts on marriage. Because God has joined the two together to divorce and remarriage is like committing adultery. Now, here's the thing. I think that this is hyperbole. I think that Jesus is using hyperbole here because it comes right after Jesus used hyperbole in Mark chapter 9. The section right before this, Mark 9, 42 through 50, Jesus says that you are to cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Well, we don't actually cause or cut our hands off if it's going to cause us to sin. Jesus uses hyperbole there. He uses hyperbole here to describe the significance of divorce in God's eyes. Now, Jesus doesn't use hyperbole to exaggerate the significance, but instead to properly communicate how serious God considers this in his eyes. Why is it that, that marriage and, and, and why is marriage so important in God's eyes? Why is, why is divorce so lamentable in God's eyes? Well, Jesus hints at it here by going back to Genesis 1, by going back to Genesis 2. The answer is made explicit in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, I think, is one of the most important passages in the Bible when it comes to marriage. Mark 10, Genesis 2, they tell us that marriage is to be held in high honor because God values it so much, that he sees it as so important. But then we see in Ephesians 5 the reason why, why God values marriage so much. You see, throughout the Bible, God uses marriage, uh, the image of marriage, to portray his relationship with his people. And in the New Testament, 
What we see is that the church is oftentimes is described as the bride of Christ. Now, Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, tells us that this isn't just some useful analogy that God later co-opted and said, hey, you know what, that's, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm going to use that. No, what we see in Ephesians 5 is that God ultimately created marriage for, one, for, for many purposes, but the, the most important one is so it can show us his relationship with his people. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's work through this. Uh, First, Paul quotes Genesis 2, verse 24, uh, this passage that Jesus also quotes in Mark 10. Now, in the context of Genesis 2, we know that this passage where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, and shall hold fast to his wife. That passage is referring to Adam and Eve. It's referring to a physical marriage. It is referring to an actual marriage. By implication, it's referring to all marriages as well. So first Paul quotes that in verse 31. And then in verse 32, he says something shocking. He says, this mystery, this union between a husband and wife becoming one flesh, it isn't just about the relationship between a husband and wife. It's not even primarily about a husband and wife, it is instead referring to Christ and the church. In other words, before sin leads to broken marriages, before the first marriage in the Garden of Eden, before creation itself, God has a plan. And that plan is to use marriage as a signpost to point to his love for his people. You see, God created marriage for many reasons, but the primary reason he created it and he instituted marriage was to show people his unwavering commitment, his unwavering love, his unwavering devotion to his people. It is to show his people that he will always be faithful to them. He will never forsake them. He will never fail them. He will always give them exactly what they need. And so he institutes marriage as a way to remind people his approach, his love, his service, his commitment to them. You see, this is why God is opposed to the idea of divorce. Because it makes a statement about God's relationship with his bride, with his church. Yes, metaphors break down. We live in a broken world. Sin is very real. Sometimes sin is oftentimes most uh, on display in our closest relationships. That's why God makes concessions for divorce in the Old Testament. That's why God makes concessions for divorce in the New Testament. But the reason why God loves marriage so much is because marriage is meant to remind us of his love for us. And that's really what this text is about. Marriage is a signpost pointing us to the greater glory of our union with Christ. It's a signpost pointing to something greater, something more beautiful, something even more unimaginable. If you are married, 
no matter how great and glorious you feel like your marriage is, it is only temporary. It is a signpost that is meant to point you to the greater marriage that is to come in the new creation. This eternal union that you will have with Jesus as a part of his church. Marriage is a signpost pointing to the greater glory of our union with Christ. And this is why God has such strong words to say about marriage and divorce. It's because, they, because every marriage, whether we realize it or not, whether we're conscious about it or not, is meant to give us a picture of how much Jesus loves his people. Have you ever considered that the Bible, in a very real way, begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve, this signpost, and it ends with a marriage as well? It ends with this great, beautiful wedding of the Lamb, of Jesus, with his church. When the new creation is established, where everything is finally made right. Marriage matters to God because it points us to a day when all of his promises to his people will be fulfilled. And we will live together with him forever. But here's the thing. Earthly marriage isn't the end-all, be-all. It is a good thing, but it is temporary. If we don't let this earthly marriage and earthly marriage point us to the greater reality of the Lamb and the new creation and his wedding with his church, with his people, then that's a form of idolatry. It is to exalt the sign above what it is supposed to point us to. This isn't just for those who are married either. For those who are single as well, earthly marriages are not the end-all, be-all. They are not the most important thing in our lives. If you wonder if God has this plan for you in marriage, we can confidently say yes. But you might skip the earthly marriage. You might skip the signpost, the temporary wedding for a marriage that is far more glorious far more beautiful, far more perfect than anything that this life can offer. Marriage is a signpost to point to the greater glory of our union with Christ. Now this passage is a hard one. It's not fun to preach. I know many of us here this morning have processed through this. We've wrestled with the area of divorce. Many of you are happily remarried. Many of you are in wonderful, godly marriages. But when you read passages like this, especially Jesus' words there at the end about divorce and remarriage, and it's like adultery, it's easy to come away from it feeling guilty for your past. And if, if that's you this morning, I just want to close with the context of this passage. It's something that we skipped over at the beginning of the, the um, passage. Verse 1. And he left there, And went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Let's leave that on the screen. I want us to focus briefly on the itinerary of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. It tells us that Jesus, he's come out of the north, he's come out of Galilee, and then he's gone to Judea. And then what does it say after that? It says, now he is beyond the Jordan. Now that phrase is significant. It's significant because it ties back to something in the Old Testament. 
ties back to this moment when the people of Israel were about to see God's promises to them fulfilled. They were about to enter into the promised land. But they weren't quite there yet. They stood beyond the Jordan. In the Old Testament, God made his people wait outside of the promised land, just beyond the Jordan, where he would one day fulfill his promises. And just like Israel waits for God, waits for these promises of God to be fulfilled once they've gone past the Jordan, once they've entered into the promised land, Mark tells us very intentionally that Jesus is teaching this beyond the Jordan. He is, now normally that that wouldn't be that significant, but we've seen over and over in the gospel of Mark that Mark is making these connections between what God has done in the past, specifically in the Exodus. God saving his people from slavery to Egypt and bringing them this salvation through deliverance. And he makes that connection with Jesus as well, that God is saving his people not from slavery to, to the Egyptians, but slavery to sin. And he's about to deliver them, offer them this salvation. And the second deliverance is far greater than the first deliverance was. And so what is in view here, when it talks about Jesus teaching this beyond the Jordan, is that Jesus has his eyes on the cross. This teaching is difficult. It is is uncompromising. But the reality is that Jesus is teaching this from beyond the Jordan. He's, He's teaching this with the cross in view. Just like the people of Israel are about to experience this great salvation at the hands of God. They were about to experience this wonderful blessing where all of God's promises to them would finally be fulfilled in the land. The same is the exact same truth here. Jesus says hard things. He says difficult things, but he says them right as he he is about to go to the cross and offer up God's great salvation for all of our sins to save us from that. And no matter your past, No matter what you have experienced, no matter what you have done, we can be sure of God's promises that are coming for those who are found in him. One of my favorite hymns, and it's not because of the name, um, is called On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. I love this hymn because it gets at the heart of this passage of this already and not yet, that we have these great promises of God that have been purchased for us because of what Jesus has done for us on on the cross, that we are covered in the blood of Jesus, and yet we have this longing, this longing that comes because promises have not yet fully been fulfilled. And Jesus is standing beyond the Jordan. He's just about to bring salvation for his people. We also stand beyond the Jordan. We also long for this eternal marriage and bliss and glory that will come for all of God's people. I just want to read a few parts of this hymn. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. All over those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in his bosom rest? I am bound 
for the promised land. Marriage is a signpost pointing to the greater glory of our union with Christ, no matter your past, no matter the brokenness that you have experienced, because of Christ's sacrifice for you, you can be united forever with him. Because of Christ, we stand beyond the Jordan, but we are guaranteed the promised land. We are bound for that promised land. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we desperately need you. And as I have said a couple times this morning, we all come from different places when it comes to this topic. Father, I, I pray that we would have this deep longing for what marriage is supposed to point us toward. That we would consider frequently that one day we will be united with you. Father, in the meantime, in the interim, as this is a passage that speaks about how we are to love and commit ourselves and, and to reflect to a watching world your love for the church, as we are to do everything we possibly can to not be a stumbling block to others. God, I ask that you would give us grace. That you would help us to love and serve sacrificially. To do so in marriages, but not just in marriages, but to do so in every relationship that we have. All for the glory of your Son. Help us to continue to look to the promised land, to look to what is awaiting those who are found in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.